like this is like perpetuated you know what i mean Mm -hmm. um and so that's just it's not like well if you don't like it leave for for either party really right um just that it's that's the way that we're structured but anyway we are coming right up on the end here uh we we want to thank you all so much for listening this has been the gap we talked about Cuomo's resignation and about the Newborg, Newburgh School Board. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I'm getting tongue-tied. Uh, banning the pride flag and the Black Lives Matter flag. Uh, thank you to everybody who called. Yeah, really appreciate the, the conversation. Uh, thank you all very much. Air Voices is up next. We'll be back next week. This is The Gap on KBOO Portland. See ya. This has been The Gap on your community connection, KBOO Portland. Stay tuned for more of the public affairs block on KBOO. You're tuned in to listener-supported community radio, KBOO. KBOO Community Radio holds open meetings concerning the operations and programming of KBOO in accordance with the requirements of the Communications Act of 1934 and certification requirements of the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Information about KBOO Community Radio's open meeting policy is available at our website at kboo.fm. Due to the temporary closure of in-station activity at KBU, meetings will be conducted online via public video conferencing, unless otherwise noted. A public link and phone number to attend the meetings are available on our website. The Finance Committee meets on the third Thursday of the month at 5 p.m. Please visit our website at kboo.fm to verify if a meeting is being held.
Ahlan wa sahlan and welcome to another episode of Arab Voices coming to you from the studios of KPFT 90.1 FM, Houston's community station. This is Saeed, executive producer and host of Arab Voices. In April 2021, the Arab American Educational Foundation Center for Arab Studies at the University of Houston hosted a symposium on Professor Osama Maqdisi's book, Age of Coexistence, the Ecumenical Frame and the Making of the Modern Arab World. It featured contributions from the author as well as distinguished scholars, Professor Elan Papi with the University of Exeter, Dean Amal Ghazal with the Doha Institute for Graduate Studies, Professor Judith Tucker with Georgetown University, and Professor Jamil Aydin with the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. The event was moderated by Professor Abdurrazzaq Takriti, Director of the Arab American Educational Foundation Center for Arab Studies and AAAF Chair in Modern Arab History at the University of Houston. Let's listen in to a portion of that event, and on the next episode of Arab Voices, I will air the remaining remarks. Welcome. It is a great pleasure to be uh, welcoming you here today on behalf of the uh, Arab American Educational Foundation Center for Arab Studies at the University of Houston. Uh, and uh, we are honored uh, to be organizing this event um, on Professor Osama Maqdisi's latest book, uh, The Age of Coexistence. Uh, in my view, this is one of the most important books to, uh, to have appeared in the field in the past uh, decade. It is uh, the culmination of more than 25 years uh, of reflection, thought, and research on questions of sectarianism, anti-sectarianism, uh, difference, uh, and uh, transition uh, from uh, uh, the Ottoman imperial structure to the uh, state structures uh, that we currently see uh, in the region, uh, and of course, uh, the colonial uh, role in shaping uh, that uh, transition. All of these themes are amply discussed in this book, and they will be reflected on by this incredibly distinguished lineup of speakers that we have uh, today. Uh, I was not surprised when all of them agreed to come, because Osama is held uh, in great esteem in our field. He is highly respected uh, by uh, some of the most influential historians, and definitely we have uh, um, several of them with us uh, today. There was uh, an audio glitch uh, there with the introduction of the first speaker, and the first speaker was Professor Judith Tucker, distinguished scholar of the history of the women and gender in the Arab world. She has held numerous leadership positions in the field, including president of the Middle East Studies Association of North America, editor of the International Journal of Middle East Studies, and director of the Master of Arts in Arab Studies program at Georgetown University. Her books include Women in 19th Century Egypt, In the House of Law, Gender and Islamic Law in Ottoman Syria and Palestine, and Women, Family, and Gender in Islamic Law. Well, I'm so happy to be part of this panel that engages and celebrates Osama Maktizi's Age of Coexistence. And uh, reading this splendid book, I was struck by how many of the major struggles and disappointments that have marked the modern history of the region 
came into a new kind of focus thanks to Osama's deeply reflective and informed exploration of the intellectual underpinnings of coexistence. And uh, I would add that on a personal note, it really helped me make more sense of my first experiences living in the Middle East, in Lebanon and, and in Egypt in the 1970s. Um, it was a time I now realize when the ecumenical frame still actively shaped the ideas and actions of many Arab writers and political actors. Although it was increasingly coming under the enormous pressures that Osama describes in his epilogue. It was very much alive, however, and I think in retrospect, the promise of that time was central to my decision to become an academic focused on the region. So many thanks to Osama for shedding new light on that period for me. I'd like to begin by mentioning just two aspects of this book that I very much appreciated as a historian of the Middle East. Uh, there are many more that I could raise, and I'm sure my fellow panelists will be doing just that. Um, and then, so I'll just mention two of these things, and then I'll move on to some of the questions that arose for me uh, as I read. First, uh, Osama displays not just a mastery of, but also a profound respect for other scholarship on the intellectual history of the late Ottoman and Mandate periods. He gives full attention to the work of historians, both contemporaries and predecessors, who write or, and wrote in English and in Arabic. Uh, too often, I think, works of grand narrative falter when it comes to recognizing the contributions of other scholars. Uh, this book, on the contrary, engages trajectories of scholarship that have grappled in their own ways with the theme of coexistence in the Ottoman Empire and Mandate periods. So there are actually two narratives here. One is the narrative of the ecumenical frame and its development over the course of the 19th and 20th centuries. And the other is a history of the scholarship that is relevant to this question from the 1930s and 40s works of George Antonius and Albert Horani, right up to the most recent generation of scholars like Carol Hakim or Jens Hansen. There is a generosity of spirit on the part of Osama when it comes to the work of others in the field that deserves to be applauded and emulated. A second aspect of the book I'd like to mention is the way Osama handled the ubiquitous problem of Middle East exceptionalism. He reminds us gently and consistently over the pages of the book that the history of the region belongs to a global context, that the challenges the Ottoman Empire and its successor states faced were challenges common to states in other parts of the world as they grappled with a global 19th century political revolution. As he puts it, and I quote, the challenge of political inclusion has plagued every secular state in the modern era. The discourse of citizenship and equality was everywhere fraught, from anti-blackness in the US to anti-Semitism in Europe to the deeply exclusionary racial civilizational discourses of modern European empires. And later developments in the Middle East, such as the claims of despotism to be the guardian of pluralism, find their parallels in the imperial claims to be the standard bearer of liberal ideology. 
Indeed, the persistence of ecumenical thought in the Middle East compares very favorably with aspirational projects of inclusion elsewhere. So this history of sectarianism and anti-sectarianism in the Middle East, firmly located in a global frame, constitutes what I think is a very powerful and incontestable refutation of Middle East exceptionalism. Now, I'd like now to turn to three questions, or perhaps it would be more accurate to say three areas where I think this book sets us future research agendas. One of the hallmarks of a great book is how it invites us to think differently and head in new scholarly directions, how it encourages shifts in our perspectives and our research plans. So I'll share a few of my thoughts about what I found both inspiring and provocative and I would invite Osama to weigh in, uh, I hope, on what he sees as the possible uh, future directions. First, in connection with the global frame, I was struck by the very occasional mention of intellectuals in the diaspora who made contributions to ecumenical thought, not least among them, Amin Rahani. Given the massive movement of Ottoman Christian subjects to the new world, which Osama comments on for sure, uh, as well as their sustained attachments to their homelands and their propensity to establish Arabic newspapers and salons in both North and South America, I think we can ask about their contributions. Were these contributions to the fashioning of the ecumenical frame significant well beyond their numbers? Uh, Osama does briefly suggest in the book that, and I quote, they inadvertently bolstered the ecumenical frame, but I found myself really wanting to learn more about this. There are a number of questions we might pose here. Was there something about the nature of their experience as immigrants as being out of place that inflected their views of coexistence? Did they tune into the anti-Black or anti-Catholic currents in the U.S.? or in the case of South America, the anti-indigenous? And did they make analogies that brought the, brought the sectarian into better focus for them? And how well were their voices heard back home? I mean, since we know that some returned. Okay, so let me just try to pick up. I'm really, I really apologize. I don't know what happened, a sudden, a sudden uh, collapse of the internet here. But um, so, yes, I mean, I was, I, so I was really asking about, was it, um, uh, you know, if their voices were heard and how were they heard? Um, was it more common for new world exclusions to translate into a reinforcement of difference and perhaps even the introduction of new ideas about race or civilization? Um, is there any indication that the communalism in a place like Mount Lebanon took on some of the coloration of anti-blackness or anti-indigeneity, say? Um, in brief, how much does the development of the ecumenical frame owe to these migrants? So, I mean, that's the first area that, that struck me as perhaps worthy of some further consideration. Uh, a second area I'd like to ask about lies in the role of women and gender in this narrative. And this is not a focus of the book, and nor should it be necessarily. I never think that, that authors should write the book that you want them to write. They should write the book that they want to write. Um, but you know, Osama certainly does pay some attention to, uh, to women and gender, and he raises a very interesting tension, I think, um, uh, 
as he does. Uh, he notes that the women's movement reflected the ecumenical age by reproducing its class and communal biases, as well as through its preference for reformed religiosity over secularism. But women, he is also quick to mention, experienced inequalities in ways that crossed class and communal lines. They had shared goals, such as better access to education, more egalitarian marriages, changes in divorce and child custody laws. At the end of the day, however, he suggests that women accepted communal, social, and legal boundaries and incorporated them into the work of the women's movements. So I think we could raise some questions here. There is some very evocative recent work on the Turkish women's movement, and I am indebted to form my former student, Merve Tahirulu, for bringing it to my attention. Uh, Recent historians of the movement, of the Turkish women's movement, have been very struck by the propensity of Turkish women intellectuals to find common cause with their Armenian, Greek, and Kurdish counterparts, long past the time when the rise of Turkish ethno-religious nationalism had fractured men's relationships across these communities. On the eve of the First World War, Turkish feminist women were still writing essays and novels that recognized the sisterhood of women of these other communities. It was only in the aftermath of the war, with the collapse of the empire and the war of Turkish independence, that the Turkish women's movement took its definitive turn towards exclusive ethno-nationalism. And we also have evidence from the Mashrik of serious commitments to anti-sectarianism on the part of women's movements. Uh, Elizabeth Thompson documents how the Women's Union of the 1920s in Syria and Lebanon was established and operated as cross-sectarian and Arab nationalist. And Ellen Fleischman makes the case that class and educational affiliations inevitably trumped sect in the Palestinian women's movement of the mandate period. So in all these cases, Turkish, Syrian, Lebanese, and Palestinian, Aspirational anti-sectarianism was very much on display and was being performed in the public representations and demonstrations uh, of the women's movements. I think this history raises some interesting questions for future discussion of the role of women in the development of the ecumenical frame. Did elite women foreground coexistence more explicitly than did elite men? Did the connections that women made as a result of their shared positionality, the fact that their experiences as women had so much in common regardless of community, did that result in a different vision of coexistence, one that was actually more secular in spirit, even if constrained by male policing of communal boundaries? I agree that women could gravitate toward the tactic of what Osama terms reformed relig religiosity a turning to their separate religious spaces to try to affect the changes they sought. But I would suggest that it was a shared tactic, even if carried out in different spaces, and that it could just as well bring them together in common cause as divide them. Separate battles, but very much part of the same war and perhaps coordinated and jointly strategized from time to time. So we could complicate the picture further with attention to the growth of transregional contacts especially in the 20th century, when women came into closer communication across political borders. The Pan-Arab Women's Conferences and the Eastern Women's Convenings of the 1930s and 1940s raised demands for equal education, equal pay, healthcare, women's suffrage, minimum marriage age, things that were to apply across the boundaries of communities. 
And these were demands that pretty much all the active women could get behind. So how do we balance these demands of universal appeal and applicability across the time, against the time and focus women devoted to more community-specific targets? I don't think we have a good sense yet of how various demands were being prioritized and what that meant for the conscious transgression of communal boundaries. But at a minimum, women do not seem to be passive followers of a model of coexistence designed by men. Third and last, I'd like to raise some questions about personal status law, which occupies a place of some significance, I think, in Osama's account. If I have read it correctly, the maintenance and development of communal personal status law has both circumscribed and enabled the ecumenical frame. On the one hand, it is the most conservative element, the inegalitarian, gendered, and religiously informed laws of personal status inscribe communal boundaries in social lives. These laws block movement toward a truly secular society of equal citizens. On the other hand, the laws of personal status are what Osama terms, and I quote, a condition of possibility for the modern ecumenical frame. They work to reassure communities that their religion is still relevant to intimate life, that there is a communal bulwark against fears of secularism and assimilation. All the states of the Mushrik, including the revolutionary ones, have retained personal status law, as Osama notes, as the key to reconciling religious diversity with the rule of law and equality. And Osama also seems to suggest that there is a strong connection between the retention of these laws and the absence of religious or ethnic cleansing, although it was not clear to me how exactly you, you thought, Osama, about the cause and effect in this context. And if these laws are the condition of possibility for the ecumenical frame, are you implying that they are a necessary condition, that their shortcomings are a necessary evil for a greater ecumenical good? We do gain valuable insight here into the perennial question of why it has proven to be so difficult to undertake any serious reform of the regime of personal status, to say nothing of abolishing it altogether in favor of a secular legal code. But I am left with several questions that we might pursue. Um, let me just say first that personal status law comes across as something of a redoubt, I think, an inert repository of siloed community identity. The history of the law as a field of intellectual endeavor and popular struggle remains somewhat in the background. The resonance of personal status law for various communities is taken at face value as primarily a marker of identity. Would we gain something by attending more closely to the history of this law in the 19th and 20th centuries? By exploring, for example, the ways in which the language of rights and justice at a personal level was tied to religious laws and religious courts. Or by tracing the evolution of legal strategies that were employed by Muslims, Christians, and Jews that crossed the lines of community and class. What I'm trying to suggest here is that laws of personal status, including the transformations of the modern period, were the products of a long history of evolution in a context of religious diversity. The modern versions of these laws are the product of interactive coexistence, not only the markers of segregation and sectarianism, and we should probably be taking this into account. 
And then secondly, the laws of personal status seem to be stacked up against something that might be better, more egalitarian, less gendered. Is this a secular family law of European or American design? I suspect not. I suspect that's not what Osama has in mind. We are all well aware of the long struggle and ongoing legal battles that have been waged and are still being waged to try to achieve racial, gender, and class equalities under the laws of liberalism. What then is the alternative? Is it better to have a playing field that you know, a legal language that has deep cultural resonance? And isn't it easier and perhaps safer to struggle for equality and rights on home terrain? In any case, these battles for reform of personal status law are continuing ones. And a final looming question for the future of the ecumenical frame, can the laws of personal status be stripped of their inequalities and yet retain their treasured distinctions? So personal status law is not at all the focus of this book, but I think it does go to the final question Osama poses as to whether the ecumenical frame can be salvaged. Part of reimagining the ecumenical frame will have to include consideration of how Muslims, Christians, and Jews will arrange their lives under family laws in ways that accommodate their sense of cultural tradition, yet provide for all kinds of intercommunal relations. And so this may well be a key challenge of the road ahead. I'll end with my gratitude for such a good read. This is a book of insight and erudition that truly inspires and also stirs things up and I am very much looking forward to hearing from my fellow panelists and, of course, also from Osama Makdizi. Thank you. Well, thank you very much, uh, Judith. Um, I wasn't able to continue my introduction of you, but uh, I think the audience would have gotten a sense of the fact, uh, from your comment, of the fact that, uh, uh, that you're uh, one of the world's leading experts on uh, gender, Islam, uh, and uh, personal status laws, for that matter, uh, in the region in both the 19th and uh, 20th century. Now, next we move on to uh, Professor Jamil Aydin. And uh, Professor Aydin is, uh, teaches at the University of North Carolina at uh, Chapel Hill. Uh, he focuses on uh, both modern Middle Eastern history, but also modern Asian history. And he emphasizes on the uh, connectivities uh, uh, the international connecti connectivities uh, of the intellectual histories of the Ottoman and Japanese empires. Uh, he talks about uh, transnational racial and civilizational identities in his work. Uh, he looks at Muslim, Asian, and African uh, uh, intersections. So he has uh, a wide range uh, of uh, work on these uh, questions. He's the author of The Idea of the Muslim World a global intellectual history, which appeared with uh, Harvard University uh, Press in uh, 2017, I believe. Um, he's also the author of The Politics of Anti-Westernism in Asia, Visions of World Order in Pan-Islamic and Pan-Asian uh, Thought, uh, which uh, uh, was published uh, by Columbia University uh, Press. I could go on and on, but uh, let's hear from Jamil uh, about uh, Osama's book, and it is a great pleasure to be hosting you uh, today, Jimmy. Um, thank you, uh, uh, Professor Takriti, and thank you to the Center for Arab Studies at uh, Houston University. Uh, it's a great pleasure to be here. I should note uh, that 
Um, I uh, received a book uh, uh, last year, immediately after it came out, and uh, and uh, to review it. In fact, I think I have one of the first published reviews of the book in the Journal of um, Oxford Islamic Studies. Um, and the moment I start reading the book, I was in the garden and uh, and I finished it in one single day. And as Abdul Razak was saying, uh, Abit was saying that this is one of the most important books in the in the last uh, several decades. I will say maybe in. Uh, uh, four decades, and I will refer to adversaries orientalism. Uh, in some ways, I um, it, and, and in many ways, I do think that this is a book uh, in some ways uh, complementing uh, Professor Said's book on orientalism. And if you think of um, the book on orientalism as some sort of a vaccine against anti-Arab and anti-Muslim racism, um, uh, we do now know that the racialization of Arabs and Muslims are actually done by history, by historical arguments. Uh, and it's not a skin color racism. And, and Edward Says was trying to show that, how um, a certain narrative of history uh, produced a racialization of Arabs and Muslims. Um, but uh, what we learned in the last uh, six months, and or uh, now we are learning that uh, this type of, uh, if you think of racism as a sickness and a virus, it can mutate in very different forms. And one of the reasons why I was really excited about this book is that um, it is in some ways giving the, the booster shot of uh, uh, Orientalism and sort of anti-Arab racist narrative of history in the, in the sense that it, it is clarifying uh, many of the arguments that is used to racialize Muslims. And, and one of the main arguments uh, that you see around and I see everywhere in, among our colleagues is this argument is that yes, uh, modern Middle East is in crisis Yes, um, um, European empires may be responsible, uh, colonialism and mandate, but you have to accept that um, there was nothing there before. Uh, this area was already doomed to fail, um, irrespective of European imperialism or not. And, and it actually gives a very pessimistic uh, outlook on the future. I mean, if, if Orientalism is, is basically a judgment on the past, present, and the future of the Arab world, to say that you're doomed to fail, no hope for you. Um, and there are reasons that we, when we see around, we, 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 one tends to get pessimistic. Um, and I, uh, the reason why I actually wrote another review of this book, I, I, I co-edited, which was gonna come out in uh, late May in the uh, H. Diplo, I, uh, with five other colleagues, is actually, uh, the, the book is almost, uh, what a great historical scholarship. Uh, so when you read it, you realize, wow, I have been reading you know, almost hundreds of books on the late Ottoman history, which is questioning so many different things. But you want, you wait for some sort of a, a creative scholar who will come and change the paradigm to make sense of all of this new scholarship uh, on late Ottoman history. But it's also um, a book that is almost a guide for activists in, in today who are generally very pessimistic, right? To be Arab world is, is um, dealing with some sort of sectarianism and conflict and collapse of uh, political projects, authoritarianism. And I, when I visit my uh, colleagues and friends in, in Arab world or on, uh, on Turkey, uh, they began to get really hopeless. They say, look, this is not going to change. It's not going to get any better. And there is no, uh, you know, the, the model that you emulate is, is European model, democracy. But the Europe is the one is also the, the acting as an arsonist, right? They are bringing all kinds of poisonous ideas um, and then Osama finally kind of relying on all of this recent scholarship, uh, making sense of, of um, 
offering a different reading of that history. And as an Ottomanist, I should say that I, um, uh, I try to be a revisionist and a progressive Ottomanist, Ottoman historian, uh, try to not to narrate the Ottoman past from the Istanbul Turkic perspective. I always make sure that my students can never pass a classroom if they don't know um, any of the Armenian Ottomans or the um, uh, Greek Ottoman ministers and pashas. Uh, but now I, you know, after reading this book, and that's one of the reasons why I finished in a single day and got really excited about this, is that um, I did realize that how much of, of a neglect I still had about the Arab um, provinces of the Ottoman Empire. And because we focus on the north and the Balkans and, and other places. So I want to um, kind of go back to uh, focus on two important contributions of this book, uh, which is both crucial for the kind of a new manifesto, new agenda to teach and write Ottoman history. Um, but I also say that these uh, contributions um, also uh, is important for the activists. So if we if we think of uh, Edward Said's Orientalism as a book, not only of historical scholarship, but as a book as a guide for activists. As one of my grad students stated, he read Orientalism as an activist, and he was very surprised that we assigned it in the classroom. I would also say that this book would, would also serve for the general audience um, to make things better in the Middle East, because it is finally giving uh, a way out of this kind of hopeless conditions in the Middle East. Um, let me uh, then uh, highlight two crucial scholarly contributions of this book that will also uh, help us politically today. One of them is the is the narrative on Ottoman history. So this book is changing how we teach, how we do research on the late Ottoman history, especially from 1860s to, uh, uh, to World War I and beyond. Um, so we, we do know that just even 100 years ago today, uh, the borders between the North in Turkey and the Arab, uh, uh, Ottoman Arab provinces were not hard drawn. There were still imaginations of a, a Turco-Arab federation um, uh, even in the in the early French invasion of that uh, that area of Syria, for example, um, uh, uh, Antep was was connected to Aleppo. Still, Adana was connected to Aleppo, and it's a it's a very surprise. I always tell uh, uh, people in Turkey who are helping the Syrian refugees, we have to change the narrative that the Syrian refugees belong to this country. Right? They hundred years ago today, these borders did not make any sense. They didn't want to be partitioned in some ways. And we have to think about the border between Turkey and the Arab provinces as a kind of partition, as the partition uh, of Palestine or um, South Asia. Um, so what what we, what we I learned from this book, and um, which makes sense with all the other works that we, we understand, is that the Ottomanism was not a project uh, made in Istanbul and imposed in, uh, in Arab provinces. Ottomanism was also um, a, a vision for a future, a constitutional future based on the rights of different Ottoman citizens actually produced in Arab uh, provinces um, and then spread from there to other places. And there, uh, uh, Osama Matisi emphasizes the role of Christian Arabs, um, also uh, Arab Jews, in producing Ottomanism. And this is the most successful, I think, for more, most original interpretation of late Ottoman history in, in recent decades, because we do have a very um, linear narrative of the late Ottoman Empire. We think that the 
uh, even though Tanzimat um, of 1839 pro promise of an inclusive empire, um, the project failed on many grounds. The project failed because uh, Turkish-speaking Sunni Muslims in Istanbul really weren't interested in sharing power and, and giving full equality to non-Turkish Sunni elites. Um, uh, but also we uh, we know that uh, the starting from the Balkans, but going to the Anatolia, uh, minorities who first worked constitutionally to make the empire more inclusive, but at some point they decided that um, it's better for them to leave. Uh, um, and you know that's part of the, the options on the table, that whether you want to reform the empire or you want to leave. And I think what happened in the north from the Balkans to Anatolia, uh, and Osama doesn't have a uh, uh, nostalgic view of the Ottoman Empire. He knows all the violent conflicts. Um, it, it ended up leading to World War I and the, uh, the fracturing of the Ottoman Empire with their decision to preserve the empire. But many of us neglected the Arab provinces. We uh, neglected for various reasons. Um, uh, we thought that they were either part of that kind of a Muslim unity and Arab Christians were not given a, a prominent place. What uh, this book shows is that uh, Ottomanism uh, worked out among uh, in Arab provinces, especially after the crisis in 1860, the massacres in 1860 in, in, uh, in Syria. And we have to uh, restore the position of uh, Ottomanist intellectuals like George Zaydan, Farhan Tun, Shibli Shumayel, um, next to and study them next to people like Namak Kemal and Zia Gokal. These were also Ottoman intellectuals. And, and uh, post uh, partition uh, separation between Turkey and the Arab provinces made sure that none of the Turks today in history textbooks know these names. And, and even in history departments, they don't study George Zezan, they don't study Farhan Tun or Shibdi Shumayel. And this is the greatest injustice, not only to a fair understanding of history, but also uh, for Turks, for, for Arabs in some ways. That's not to say to ignore the violence that happened or, or ethnic cleansing uh, uh, subject to the Armenians. I think Osama carefully shows that there is a divergence between the northern provinces of the Ottoman Empire and the southern provinces. And in many ways, the Ottoman Empire, that kind of vision of an inclusive Ottoman Empire survived in the south, which is very important for the kind of post-Ottoman uh, uh, trajectory. Um, so in, uh, in some ways, through this book, we know that um, uh, and I'm going to, I think I have only a couple of minutes left, so you can, uh, Abedi can warn me. I, I was going to go into secularism too, but I will make this connection. Through this book that we know that there was a vision of a constitutional secular form of state and governance inherited from the late Ottoman Empire, even to the post-Ottoman uh, uh, states of Iraq, Syria, Lebanon, and Turkey. And, um, and Osama's uh, uh, book also shows that in some ways, we have to think about um, Syria, Iraq, uh, Lebanon, and others are a better inheritor of the good side of Tanzimat than Turkey was. Because the Republic of Turkey, for various reasons in the north, uh, through the Lausanne Treaty, actually turned Islam into an ethnicity. And in Lausanne Treaty, the borders are drawn through religious lines. Uh, and um, uh, post-Armenian uh, uh, genocide, as well as the Turkish-Greek population exchange, Turkey became a Muslim majority country uh, tanks or because of Ataturk and, and the Kemalists, right? So the Kemalists actually made Turkey um, 
the Islamic majority country that it is. Uh, so the diversity was lost, but Islamic was showing that actually the southern Arab provinces kept that kind of a constitutional vision of an inclusive state um, and a secular uh, state going. And he does show how this time the British colonialism or the British French colonialism is the one that actually undermined that inclusive democratic legacy. Uh, there is some, I'm gonna note uh, briefly, there is this implication for the theory of secularism. This is extremely important uh, aspect of this book because it, um, it again goes against the uh, uh, core of the Orientalist argument that the Middle Eastern societies are afflicted with Islamism and religion uh, in, or any form of religious loyalties. Uh, and the secularism comes from Europe. All the good values come from Europe and somehow they fail to internalize it. And this book shows that no, there is where well, was a kind of secularism in this region. Um, and the secularism is ecumenical. You can be a pious Muslim and a Christian, but then have a respect for others. And in fact, it was the, the European imposed majoritarian nation state projects that destroyed that, um, that, a, that a Middle Eastern version of secularism. Um, and I will use my last minute for my conclusion. I, I wrote two reviews of this book, so I have many different conclusions, but I will say um, this book is uh, not only the, one of the most important books in the Middle Eastern history, uh, but also in the his, in kind of global history and history of theory of, of secularism. Um, but I find, uh, I guess my question to Osama in, in terms of the impact of the book, because it is clear that uh, by rewriting the narrative of the Arab Middle East, not as a land of primordial and in, in, innate sectarian passion uh, that led to the failure of ideals of toleration of civic nationalism and democracy, by showing an alternative history, um, uh, Osama Maktisi shows that there has been erasures and tragic foreclosures of alternatives to oppressive nationalism today. Um, and by recovering that, that historical tradition, he's offering a passable pluralist futures of the region. And that's exactly what we need today in the region from Turkey to Lebanon um, and everywhere. Thank you. Uh, thank you, uh, Jamil. We would have loved it if we had all the time in the world for you because your insights are profound and your reading of the book is very close. I read your book review of it. It's fantastic. I would encourage everybody to check out uh, Jamil's uh, book review. Maybe you can post the link, uh, Jamil? Yes, uh, yes, of course, yeah. Uh, thank uh, you. You're listening to Arab Voices, coming to you from the studios of KPFT Houston. This is Saeed, executive producer and host of Arab Voices. Shortly, we will continue listening to the symposium on Professor Osama Maqdisi's book, Age of Coexistence, the Ecumenical Frame and the Making of the Modern Arab World. It was held in April 2021 and was hosted by the Arab American Educational Foundation Center for Arab Studies at the University of Houston. Let's continue listening to the symposium on Professor Osama Maqdisi's book, Age of Coexistence, the ecumenical frame and the making of the modern Arab world. So now we we are honored to be uh, to move on to uh, Professor Amal Ghazal. Professor Ghazal is an is a is an old uh, friend. Uh, she is the uh, dean of social sciences and humanities, and the director uh, uh, dean of the social sciences and humanities at uh, the Doha Institute, and the former director of the Center for Comparative Study of Muslim Societies and Cultures at Simon Fraser University in Vancouver, uh, Canada. Uh, Professor Ghazal is uh, both the person who uh, I've known longest on this panel, 
but also the person whose work uh, uh, is probably closest to mine in the sense that she wrote a fantastic book uh, on Oman and the Indian Ocean. She wrote a book called The Islamic Reform and Arab Nationalism, Expanding the Crescent from the Mediterranean to the Indian Ocean, 1880s to 1930s. Um, she's also the uh, co-editor of the Oxford Handbook of Contemporary Middle Eastern and North African uh, History with uh, uh, Jens Hansen, who I believe is in the audience with us today as well. Um, Professor Ghazal is uh, uh, also uh, a scholar of uh, the Blad uh, al-Sham and uh, besides uh, working on transnational connections in the Indian Ocean and North Africa. So a fantastic scholar and a fully wide-ranging one, and uh, uh, it is my honor to welcome her today. Thank you so much, Abdel Razak. You know, when you give such a generous introduction, don't say we're close friends, okay? <laughs> Thanks for the invitation, and it's really an honor to take part uh, in this event and to join all those colleagues and friends especially in North America, you know, being here in, the, in Doha and then seeing all of you on my screen, just, you know, <laughs> it feels great. I feel like I'm still connected. And um, thanks again, Abdurazak, for giving me the opportunity to read the book thoroughly. Of course, I had looked at it in different uh, contexts for different purposes. This, is, uh, this was my chance to read it page uh, by page. And... Um, I've noticed that both my colleagues, Judith and Jamil, uh, started their comments by, you know, commenting on the connections between the book and issues in the North American context, which I don't have in my introduction. And perhaps this is due to my new positionality being, um, being outside of North America at an institution in the Arab world that seeks to produce knowledge kind of in a, in a certain organic way related to the region and its needs. And thus my introduction misses this comparison between you know, the, the context, the, the regional context of the, of the book and the North American uh, context. And um, I want to start by, um, or with, with, the, with, with the opening line in Osama's book, Every history of sectarianism is a history of coexistence. I think this captures the essential paradigm of our understanding and our analysis of Ottoman history, late Ottoman history more specifically, and that of the modern Middle East. I mean, as historians, we've been trying to understand the different layers of coexistence in this region, whether in the Ottoman period or in the post-Ottoman one. The sectarian lens deployed by Osama is fundamental to our analysis because of the multiple ways it challenges dominant historical narratives and provides us with new ones. But it's sectarian within the ecumenical frame that Osama presents here, not only as a conceptual framework, but also as a reference point through which Osama was able to bridge the Ottoman with the post-Ottoman and cross-reference the meanings and different manifestations of communalism nationalism, secularism, anti-sectarianism, and authoritarianism. This late Ottoman history Arab ecumenical frame serves as a comparative point for another one, which is the Islamic one that also emerged at the same time. And both Jamil and I have, have dealt with this uh, issue as well. While both have commonalities, Osama's analysis of the Ottoman ecumenical frame from the perspective of sectarian dynamics shows in what ways the two diverged 
especially on sectarian issues. Now, I won't be here, uh, you know, I won't be reviewing the book per se and all what it offers uh, in terms of a new theoretical ground um, and multiple, multiple contributions to understanding the intellectual and political history of the modern Middle East. I'd rather focus on some key contributions or at least contributions. I find them key, especially in the ways they relate to work I've been doing. And uh, I also find them uh, contributions that disrupt and challenge the historiography and provides us with the new insights and food for thought. First, the book, and to challenge the primordial characterization of sectarianism in the Middle East and its violent, authoritarian, and anti-democratic aspects, positions 1860 not as a manifestation of a long history of sectarian tensions in the region, especially as Orientalist um, depictions of, of our history uh, show, but as a catalyst in the formation of an ecumenical frame that attempted to change the rules of co coexistence and make them more secular and more democratic in the, in the broad sense. This by itself is a challenging uh, perspective, challenging in a way that it's a new perspective that we have to take very seriously in the way it, 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 in the way it positions us to understanding the rest of the historical narrative, or the the point being the point of departure for the historical narrative emerging in this work. Second, it's this point that I have raised just uh, a minute uh, before on the fundamental differences between the Ottoman slash Arab and the Islamic ecumenical frames um, that I want to focus. Osama's analysis of Muslim reformers is a good reminder of the limits of Islamic reform as it emerged in the late Ottoman period onwards. The celebratory tone with which historians treat the Islamic reform movement, especially of Abdul and Rida, should also be a very cautionary one. Islamic reform's anti-sectarianism was confined within the boundaries of Islam in the form of madahib and tawa'if, etc and did not encompass all sects within either the Ottoman frame or the Arab one. Thus, despite the many intersecting layers historians have found between Islamic reform, Ottoman reform, and Arabism, we need to acknowledge the shortcomings of Islamic reform in the context of the Nahda in relationship to it or in tandem with it. As Usama indicates, this thing was in the tail. Muslim reformers didn't mind a pluralist nation and their constitutional equality as long as the essential sovereignty, as Osama shows, derived from Islam. Like Ottoman reformers believed, all is possible as long as Islam remains symbolically and constitutionally ascendant. Thus, the sectarian analytical framework here puts Islamic reform under scrutiny. The same can be said about its relationship with the Mahda. It shared both its chauvinistic and elitist characteristics, but remained ambivalent and was sometimes openly hostile towards what I'm going you know, to call in very generic terms, liberal values embedded in that Mahda. Like Osama, uh, I've also been critical of the liberalism associated with the Mahda and Osama's analysis of the limits of anti-sectarianism among Muslim reformers who are also associated with the Nahda, at least in the literature, 
Um, I think that serves to validate our criticism of, of, the, of the liberal age. Another point I want to highlight is the importance of the ecumenical frame developed by Osama in narrating a post-Ottoman history in relationship to an Ottoman one. The historiography of the modern Middle East still tends to write disjointed histories of the Ottoman and the post-Ottoman periods and to isolate the two from each other. The ecumenical framework as a point of analysis and the point of reference allows for these connections to be established, analyzed, scrutinized, as well as for the transition, transition from the Ottoman to the post-Ottoman to be better understood as one of continuity, though subject to major transformations. This allows us to provide a deeper historical context for, for sectarianism in the modern Middle East, while understanding the shifts within that context. Shifts determined by the dynamics of colonialism, authoritarianism, nationalism, and certain dominant religious discourses. The book also positions Christian Arabs at the center of the analysis and make them not so much collectively, but more as a group of various intellectuals and writers, and throughout a century as the focal lens through which sectarianism, anti-sectarianism, and secularism intersected in the Middle East and how they played out within the larger context determined by the dynamics of imperialism, majority, minority, nationalism, and anti-colonialism. Much, but not yet enough, has been written about non-Muslim communities in the Middle East, but they're often a story on the side, or a case study, and less so the center of a historical narrative that pulls the Ottoman, the post-Ottoman, the Muslim, and the non-Muslim together and define elements of a broad ecumenical frame. Of course, you know, I should mention the way also Osama brings Zionism and the colonization of Palestine in the historical narrative of sectarianism, also bridging the Ottoman, the post-Ottoman, but I'm sure Ilan Papi will have a lot to say about this and I'll leave that part uh, for him. Osama was very careful at the beginning of the book about the scope of this analysis. It's a history of sectarianism that positions Muslims vis-a-vis non-Muslims and non-Muslims vis-a-vis Muslims, but not one that positions Muslims vis-a-vis other Muslims when we talk about sectarianism in the Middle East or in the Arab world. It's a sectarianism where the majority-minority relationships are intra-religious, not inter-religious. It's also a mushrik-based analysis, with Mount Lebanon in particular being the nexus of this analysis while drawing on other cases. And Osama, from the very beginning, outlines and admits that. Sectarianism in its multiple dimensions and with all its associated elements and manifestations looks different from a geographically broader perspective. The ecumenical frame deployed here applies well to the mushrik, but may fall short accommodating all categories of sectarianism outside of its Ottoman conditions and Mount Lebanon's specific dynamics. And again, as Osama says at the very beginning, you know, if, we, if we're talking about sectarianism without uh, North Africa and without, let's say, the Arabian Peninsula, uh, we're back to characterizing Arab history as a mushriki history. So the story as it unravels in, in this book um, 
is very much a Mashruqi history. That doesn't diminish anything in, in, in how, you know, in the contributions it offers, in, in the way I and my colleagues describe the book as a fundamental one. Uh, and we'll see kind of, you know, in what ways it will be shaping historical narratives in the region. But I also want to caution that the contours remain very much Mashruqi ones. I have some kind of a question to Sama. I, you know, there is something really nice about the book is the tone, despite everything, is uh, uh, celebratory in the way that the ecumenical frame you create and you use as your analytical paradigm um, kind of uh, gives hope or at least uh, gives us a well-connected story that keeps us thinking in a very promising way about the region. But uh, you also, don't you think the structural defaults and haphazard mannerism within this frame kept weighing heavily on it until it was perhaps shaken to the core? Uh, you seem to see the Arab uprisings as part of this historical chain of events that's grounded in promises of emancipation. And this is why I think the frame you create is very interesting uh, and I think very valid in creating continuity from the late 19th century until, until the present. But can we maybe see in the Arab uprisings and all the forces related to them um, elements denouncing those defaults, revolting against them? In, in a sense, to what extent can we keep the problematic structural foundations of this ecumenical frame that you outlined really well in the introduction on the margin of our historical narrative and on the margin of the realities the region faces today. Thank you. Thank you very much, Amal, for these uh, thoughtful comments, uh, questions, uh, and reflections. You're listening to Arab Voices, coming to you from the studios of KPFT Houston. This is Saeed, executive producer and host of Arab Voices. What you just heard was a portion of the recording from the symposium held in April 2021 on Professor Osama Maqdis's book, Age of Coexistence, the Ecumenical Frame and the Making of the Modern Arab World. It was hosted by the Arab American Educational Foundation Center for Arab Studies at the University of Houston. I will air the remaining remarks on the next episode of Arab Voices. And that does it for the show today. Thanks for listening. This is Saeed, executive producer and host of Arab Voices. Until we meet next week, peace on earth.
This is Sun Lee. I'm the host of the Grateful Dead and Friends show every second Saturday of the month from noon to 2 p.m. Been a part of this amazing collective of music lovers for around 15 years. Not exactly sure when I started. I do know that we are celebrating the 20th anniversary of the show being aired on KWU. And to celebrate, we'd like to raise $10,000 for the station in order to purchase the studio transmitter link, a vital piece of equipment that KWU needs to get sound to listen. If you are able, please consider donating today. You can visit kboo.fm slash grateful or you can text from your phone GDAF to 44321. That's GDAF 